Well, good morning. Good, and welcome back. Um, just in case you uh, haven't um, looked to your left and right and seen all your neighbors this morning, we have a special treat. We have two Glendas. Uh, I'm just kidding. Glenda's sister is here. Uh, and, and, I'm sorry. What? Brenda? Uh, we got two Brendas, potentially. Uh, however you like that. Uh, but anyway, uh, be sure to... Hey, hey, Brenda, good morning. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to just kind of <laughs> um, let everybody know you're here without greeting you. Um, but it's awesome to have all of you, as well as all of our other guests uh, who are with us this morning. I know Ben has already greeted you, and it is a pleasure to have you uh, with us in the room. Uh, if this is your first time with us, please make sure you stop by the, the Connect Center and uh, receive a special uh, gift that we have from you. And I'd love to be able to, if I can, uh, maybe at least shake your hand uh, after um, today's service. Uh, it is good to see all of your wonderful faces. Well, where are we in our journey in God's Word? We are still in our uh, series entitled Ecclesiology, which is the study of the, that's right, the study of the church. And as we have been looking at various texts of Scripture to help us understand the nature of the church, we've talked about the church in these ways. The church is offensive, right? We're on the offense, right? The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church is inclusive, right? Includes all kinds of people. But then it is exclusive in the way that it approaches the name of Jesus Christ and who it opposes as Lord. Uh, the church should be unified, or as we talked about last week, it is cohesive, right? Uh, so we've talked about it's, it's visible and invisible. Uh, we've talked about the church in a variety of different ways. Well, today we're going to speak about the church in yet another way, and that is in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6, we're going to explore why the church ought to be proactive, or excuse me, provocative. The church ought to be provocative. But before we go there, let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we need you. Uh, we need you this morning um, for reasons that we can't even fully outline, but I'll just try to highlight a few. I need you, Lord God, as a teacher of your word. I need you, Lord God, the grace and opportunity, the gift to do so of teaching, Lord God. You give all of it. You carve out this moment in time, and you've designated that this should be the practice that your churches follow for the perfection, the maturity, the edification, and the equipping of your people for the work of ministry. Lord God, would you allow us to experience exactly what your word describes as the meaning of this moment? Would you allow us as a congregation to collectively and individually experience, Lord God, the piercing reality of what your word says it is, doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness so that we will be thoroughly furnished for every good work? Would you please, oh God, we need you. Would you please allow there to be a personal demonstration of the power of your spirit? Would you take, Lord God, the words preached to all and then make them very particular to the individual life in a way that makes it undeniable that you have been the one who is speaking and not me. I'm just simply used by you. Lord God, work by your Holy Spirit. You know every need that is in the room. You know the person who is in the room, but yet far from you and further than they've ever been in their life. You know the person, oh God, who is uh, hanging on by a thread, living a life of deep disappointment because of what they perceive to be multiple unanswered prayers, but yet, Lord God, they are here by your grace and by way of your mercy that we just sang about. Would you meet with that person to let them know, Lord God, that they're moving towards you in this way is in no way in vain, that there is hope for them here and in your word in particular. Lord God, 
Would you help that person who is curious about the Christ, does not know your son Jesus in a saving way, has heard the name but doesn't know what it's all about, Lord God, and they're curious and they're hoping that there's something to it. Lord God, would you make the name of your son Jesus Christ and his great work on the cross crystal clear, Lord God, to that heart? Lord God, would you also meet with the most seasoned and ardent believer? And would you uncover, Lord God, our sin and our shortcomings? And would you further move us along in being sanctified and made more like your son, Jesus Christ? Would you meet us, Lord God, even if we don't feel like this particular message is for us, would you meet us, Lord God, at our place of need and show us how yes, it absolutely is. We pray for our community. We pray for people that may never hear these words through the amplification of the microphone, but only see it fleshed out in the amplification of the lives of the people that you deploy from this place. Lord God, we pray for the community that you are now softening hearts for the people that you have in this city who do not yet know you, but you have assigned them, Lord God, to salvation, and you have assigned us to, Lord God, show, share and show the gospel to them. Lord God, we pray for those people. We pray for that person, Lord God, who just rolled back over in the bed at the sound of their alarm. Lord God, that we would get the word to them if they would not come to it. And this we pray in the matchless and holy name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Second Corinthians chapter 10, beginning with verse 3, reads this way. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your disobedience is complete the provocative church. This is provocative language, very part of a, a very much provocative letter. The Apostle Paul in his second letter to the Corinthian church is written for a variety of different reasons. He carries over some of the themes from 1 Corinthians, which is that people should be unified and not divided, not letting their diversity become divisive, which we talked about last week. But also in the letter of 2 Corinthians, Paul has found out that there's some people who question his uh, apostolic credentials. They say because he is experiencing all kinds of suffering, that this is somehow a signature that he is not blessed or being used by God. And, and then the apostle Paul makes a very robust argument about the nature of the ministry that he has been uh, uh, used to do and how he has been thronged and beaten and, 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 and experienced riots and all kinds of things, how he's been shipwrecked and suffered, all kinds of things. And actually, his sufferings are indeed the signature of his apostleship. It is his LinkedIn. It is his resume. It is the, 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 the proof of the fact that God is with him because of all of the moments that God has used him in these crazy ways when his, fight, when his faith appeared to be at crisis or when the culture around him seemed to be crashing in. And then Paul begins to kind of give us just a little bit of a, a, a peep into why he has such a robust 
apostolic resume and how it is that he's able to endure and overcome. It's not because of sheer force of will. It's because he understands something about the nature of the Christian life and that it is a very provocative walk. It is not a passive walk. It is not just a stroll through a, a field of daisies where every single prayer gets answered in just the same way that we pronounced it to God and the way that we envisioned and imagined it. That, 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 that real life in the gospel is not necessarily marked by ease, but it is a life that is marked by incredible power. It is provocative. Now, you know what the word provocative means. We can, it has a variety of different definitions, but, but when I say provocative, here's what I mean. Has anybody ever been to Bucky's? What a provocative little gas station, is it not? Nothing passive about it at all. I mean, you're, 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 as the, way, the way they're positioned here in Georgia, I mean, they're kind of on the deep outskirts of town. Right? They're, they're literally working against the traditional narrative of every gas, small town gas station we've ever seen or known. I mean, first and foremost, they start their work almost at the border. As soon as you cross into Georgia or, or into the respective state, you see signs that says, hold on to your hunger for the next 150 miles. And I was like, what? Have you seen the witness of Bucky's? How far out they start to reach? As you get closer and closer, you get compelled to bypass all these other gas stations and you get there on the grounds and this, this plaza, right, opens up and you realize that this isn't just about my car, this is about me. <laughs> the gas is cheap, I'll put the thing in the pump and I got to run inside and see what's going on in there. And you, you, you come in and you smell the, the, uh, the sandwiches that they're making and they're announcing it. And they're, they're going against the narrative of everything and pulling down every argument that you've ever heard about what a gas station is all about. Have you not seen that? Small town gas stations are supposed to be just a place where you don't even want to walk on the floor. But the bathrooms are pristine. And there's a thousand of them. They've got just as many toilets as they do pumps outside. You go into a Bucky's and uh, two full soccer teams and an orchestra get off of a bus and we can all go in the bathroom at the same time and there's no waiting. And then we all come out and we go get drinks and we go get licorice and we buy shirts and wicker chairs and wood for the grill. Have you been to Bucky's? It is provocative. I believe that even Tesla drivers go to Bucky's. I mean, they don't need gas, but they can't pass it by. It's a provocative witness. Well, I share all that because, because what Bucky's has accomplished through marketing and positioning and product, you know, branding, I believe the church ought to accomplish through mission. No, we are not planning on having some full-on three-ring sensual monstrosity in our parking lot. We're not getting ready to invest in the 50-foot inflatable gorilla to get people to come and see what we're all about. But we should have a provocative witness in this community. People should not be able to pass by this building and just barely notice that we exist and just sign us off as another facility with steeples and a, and a, and a, and a V-shaped roof and columns out front. We cannot afford to be passive we should have a provocative witness, a provocative presence 
in this community. And I believe that the Apostle Paul outlines three very basic ways in which the local church can and should have a provocative witness, a provocative presence in the community where it resides. I'll outline them for you briefly. Number one, he says some things that, make, that suggest to me that our work is both a walk and it is warfare. You saw the language of warfare. It is both a walk, a practical walk, but it is also a warfare. This is the first uh, uh, principle of being a provocative church. Number two, the weapons. Our weapons are both spiritual and they are practical. We're going to explore this in just a few moments. Also, the wins that we are looking for, the scoreboard that the provocative church operates off of is a little bit different from what everybody else is doing, but our wins are both eternal and they are territorial. We can see when the ball is advancing. So I'm going to unpack these for us in greater detail here as we move through the text. Taking a, a, a narrower or closer look at the first verse, for though we walk in the flesh... We are not waging war according to the flesh. Apostle Paul, earlier in the book of 2 Corinthians, talks about a really unique experience that they had over in Asia. As the gospel was advancing, they came up against the temple of Diana. And as the gospel was advancing in that region, people took issue with the gospel and said, these men have come in here and these men have come in here and turned the world upside down talking about this Jesus. And they have compromised the majesty of the temple of Diana. They have gotten in the way of the sacred trade because people made their money by building stones and doing different things for the temple. They have made the temple despised and the God of that temple they have dishonored. The gospel ought to always be doing that. Whatever is the sacred cow in town, if we're going to be a provocative church, the sacred cow must feel at risk and under attack. The golden calf, you remember the golden calf in the Old Testament? Every culture has a golden calf. Every culture, I don't care what it is, it has a golden calf. The golden calf, if you remember how it came about in the Old Testament, was that Israel in the absence of Moses, he had just gone up Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments from God. And while he was up there, they were down there, and they said, well, we don't know what has happened to Moses. They perceived that there was an absence or a leadership gap. They didn't know who they were following. And in the absence of clear leadership, they developed an anxiety. They then said, well, we got to have something to follow. So they collectively came together, pulled off their jewelry, and then they put it into this molten situation and came up with the golden calf, which they begin to worship. Every culture has a golden calf. Something that in the absence of clear truth and leadership, in the absence of clear truth, there is a development, there is an anxiety, there's a desire to have a centerpiece and something that adds value and a sense of stability that they can put their hope in. Every community has a golden calf. And so the, the golden calf, there's a golden calf in Avondale Estates. There's a golden calf in the greater Decatur area. There is a golden calf in Atlanta. And it is typically the drawing mechanism, the thing that everybody comes for. The golden calf for some is success. The golden calf for others is a, the entrepreneurial opportunity. The golden calf for others is indeed the diversity. 
The golden calf for others may be the weather. The golden calf for some may be the airport. Who knows? But every city, every society, every municipality has a golden calf. But I want you to notice the nature of the golden calf. Those who built it contributed to it, therefore they are beholden to it. They pulled off their jewelry. They collectively gave it its value. And this is why when you share the gospel in a community and it begins to attack and infringe upon the golden calf, people get angry because that's their baby. They helped to build that. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 and following say these words. The apostle Paul knows that these golden calves exist in various communities. And so here's one of the ways that he would go about attacking that. For though I am free of all, I made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those who were under the law as one who was under the law, that I might win those who were, even though I'm not under the law. To those who were outside the law, I became as one who was outside the law, not be some, being outside the law of God. In other words, as I sought to build relationship capital with these various audiences, I was not lowering my standard of righteousness or out here acting a clown like I don't know Christ but I did build relationship capital and so I became all things to all men to the weak I became weak and to the strong I became strong so I became all things to all men that for the sake of the gospel I might win some I might save some by all means this is not just Paul's modus operandi. This has to be the modus operandi of the church too. Provocative churches are engaging with people where they are, as they are, even though we refuse to leave them as they are. Provocative churches do other things too. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead peaceable and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. If you stop there and take the text out of context, it would appear as if believers should be praying for people in high positions so that the church can be left alone. Not so. Read the rest of the verse. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth that there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom, which is the testimony given at the proper time. In other words, all of these types of prayers that we pray for leaders and people at every position along the ladder of society is with a view toward their salvation. It says supplications, prayers, and intercessions and thanksgivings. We're not just praying to be left alone and that nobody curtails our rights. We are praying that people would bend the knee, bow the head, and say in unison with Scripture that Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man. Now, here's what you need to be careful about, about the power of prayer. If you pray like that for your society, you will be compelled to go and share the gospel with that society. Because the book of Romans says, how will they hear unless somebody goes? So if you're going to pray robustly and supplicate for city managers and city leaders and police officers and chiefs of police, if you're going to pray for nurses and doctors and business owners, if you're going to pray for school bus drivers and teachers and principals, if you're going to pray for the people who are most ardent and callous against the gospel that they would come to see the gospel, you might end up being compelled by God to go and share the gospel. I know it might be, you will be. 
if your prayer is sincere and earnest, unless you're just, being, unless you're just praying to be left alone. If you pray a prayer just to be left alone, God won't leave you alone. He'll move on our hearts because he desires that his church be provocative. We both walk with those where we find them, but we also understand that as we walk, we are at war. We are at war. As I have been walking in this very community and sharing the gospel, here's something that I have learned. The name of Jesus is broadly adored, but the work of the cross is abhorred. What do I mean? Jesus' name don't offend many. He's gentle and lowly. He's kind. He's compassionate. He's loving. Oh, Jesus. Oh, there's people. Oh, there's people I've met at the train station. Oh, there's people I've met in the shops. Oh, they love Jesus. The name of Jesus is adored by so many. But the work on the cross is abhorred. Let me tell you why. Colossians chapter 2, beginning with verse 14, if you can get all this on the screen. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That is the accusations uh, that were against God's people. This is talking about the work of Jesus, right? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. In other words, the Bible describes that the work of Jesus is not just this beautiful work of compassion, but it is also this incredible work of combat. That those who are against the church and against the work of God, that Satan himself is being actively defeated at the work of the cross. That the sin that rules and reigns in me, that I am officially not only being adopted, but I am being radically captured from his team and brought into God's team. I am being made into a proverbial traitor according to the world standard. I've been taken from Satan's army and placed into God's army and given a new uniform when I surrender to Christ. I don't just defect from Satan's army. I join another one. I begin fighting for the other side according to the scriptures. Is this not provocative? Share the name broadly. Oh, people love it. Start talking about not just the, the name of Jesus, but start talking about the nails. Oh, everybody loves the name, but Satan wants to keep the testimony of Jesus' name separate from the nails of Jesus. You see, the nails of Jesus are sharp. The nails of Jesus are biting. Why does Jesus have nails in him? Because they should have been you. This is what it looks like to see God deal with our sin, not their sin, but my sin. The nails are offensive. And we want to keep the nails as far from the, from the name of Jesus as we can. At least Satan does, not us. But you know what? Just talking about the name of Jesus but not talking about the nails of Jesus creates a very comfortable society in which we can live. And people go, oh, there's a compassionate church that shows love. They talk about the name of Jesus. They're so tender. But will we also be a church that talks about the nails of Jesus? Will we finish the sentence? Will we, will we not share an incomplete story of the work of our Savior? This is the kind of provocative work that we've been called into. We ought to be getting in trouble. 
Like the Apostle Paul experienced in Asia, we ought to be sharing the gospel in such a robust way that it's, effect, it's affecting economy, it's affecting peace, it's affecting how people gather and do life, and it's affecting it positively. People were leaving the work of temple building for Diana and coming into the work of Jesus Christ. One of the great disruptors should be the gospel, not just Bucky's. Let's look at verse four. Not only does it describe that our work is both a, wor a walk and a warfare, but the scriptures go forward to say, or to reveal that uh, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. Some of your Bibles will say they are not carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. This version, the ESV, that I'm reading, says the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. For our, for, for our weapons, here's the point, our weapons are both spiritual and practical. Look at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 through 16. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness and against spiritual forces in the evil, of forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, now in response to that, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Having done all to stand, stand firm, therefore stand, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, that in all circumstances you may take up the shield of faith, that you may be able to extinguish the flaming darts of the adversary. And then, of course, we are to also take up the sword of the Spirit, and then to pray with all kinds of prayer. Follow me carefully. You ever you notice the individual pieces of armor? Uh, you ever seen a, a young child learning to ride a bike or a skateboard? And they, you know, the parents have outfitted them in the, the helmet, the elbow pads, and the knee pads, and the shin guard, whatever else, right? How did they know where to put the pads? Because someone has studied the fall. They know where the child typically and how the child typically loses their balance and know where they need the greatest protection. Ask yourself the question, why these particular pieces of armor? Why in this order? Why in this arrangement? Why of this type? Of all the things that God could say, why are these the things that he did say should be the whole armor that we put on? And why is he stressing that we put on the whole armor? The reason he's stressing that we put on the whole armor is the same reason you would stress that your child put on the whole kit when they go out to ride their skateboard or their bikes. How silly would it be for them to have on the knee pads but not the helmet, or to have on the helmet but not the knee pads or the elbow pads? The, the Lord has watched the church fall over and over again and knows exactly what kind of cushion and protection to give it so that it can strive well until it learns how to walk without falling. We need truth because truth is regularly under attack. We need righteousness because one of the, 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 the common critiques of the local church is I would never go to a church because they're all hypocrites. Right? So, so then, but, but, but notice that we are called to put on the righteousness 
We're told to put on the breastplate of righteousness, which means we understand it's not a righteousness of our own. It is one that we put on that is shielding us. The armor is not a costume, it's armor. We're not faking it until we make it. We're fighting until we make it. Every piece of the armor is crucial for the, we as believers to put on the preparation of the gospel, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit. I need to become adept in how to put on and utilize each one of those pieces, or they are, they are crucial to my survival. Because the way this scripture describes it is that a fight is being brought to me. The weapons are both spiritual and they are practical. These elements of truth, righteousness, the prep of the gospel, and the shield of faith, and the sword of the spirit, they have practical implications. The word of God needs to be regularly stored in my heart, doing war against my own sin as I'm becoming more articulate and skilled in fighting sin in the world. There's a regular war against the truth in my own life that needs to be dealt with. I need to be regularly reminded that I don't have a righteousness, so I don't, I, don't, I don't cop out of the war that God has called me to because I'm saying, well, I don't live perfectly, so I can't share perfectly in anybody else's life. These are the lies of the adversary that live behind each one of our failures. The Bible uses this language that the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but they are mighty through God, have divine power to destroy strongholds. The Apostle Paul gives us a glimpse back over in the book of Acts as to what a stronghold might look like, but I'll share this. A stronghold is simply this. It is a barrier to belief that is rooted in the cultural and local story of how things always have been and how things should be. And typically, people in a given culture or society fight vociferously to protect that stronghold. It is, a, it is an ideological barrier to belief. It is a hardness, and it also translates to speaking evil against the name of Christ. Strongholds. Let me say this to you in two ways concerning your armor. It is hard to defend what you cannot define, and it is hard to defeat what you cannot describe. It is a must that if we're going to defend the faith, that we be able to clearly define what our faith is. If someone asks you, what is the gospel? What is truth? What is righteousness? Someone asks you that question who doesn't speak the religious language. They're not a part of the core group of the kingdom, so to speak. They're not part of the church and the, 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 the Holy Ghost-filled and, and sanctified group. They don't know the special speakeasy language. If Could you explain truth and righteousness and the gospel to those who stand outside the church? Can you explain it to the weak? Can you explain it to the strong, to the, to the proverbial uh, Jew and the Greek, those who are inside the law and outside the law? Can you explain it to the non-religious? Can you explain these concepts of God in non-religious ways? You cannot defend what you cannot define. And it's also hard to defeat what you cannot describe. We need to spend time engaging with people in the world so that we can clearly describe what the strongholds are. What do you call it when you go to the doctor and they treat you for something that you don't have? Malpractice. I feel like in many occasions we, as a church, 
when we're not aware of what's happening in the lives of people around us and we just indiscriminately tell them what they need to be doing, we're, we're, there's, a, there's, a, there's a degree of doctrinal malpractice. Like, I, I really need to understand what's going on. Like, I don't have to be an expert at every woe and every ill, but, but, but the Apostle Paul seemed to think that it was appropriate to know what was a stumbling block to the Jews and what was an issue for Gentiles. He seemed, to, he seemed to think it was appropriate to understand how people formerly used to worship at this temple and at that temple and follow that God. The Apostle Paul used to seem to think it's appropriate that when he preached the gospel, he presented it in a way that would address the issues of the unknown God, that he would unpack for them the particulars and the detail of a God that they had not known properly in all of their knowing. It's hard to defend what you cannot define, and it's hard to defeat what you cannot describe. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, look carefully then how you walk. I prefer to King James, as everybody knows that. Walk circumspectly. Head on a swivel. Look all around you, right? That little pipe that comes up out of a submarine and looks all the way around. Walk circumspectly. Have a, look around your life in a 360-degree view. Do not be unwise, as, do not be unwise, but be wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So a key part of understanding the will of the Lord is not only reading my Bible, but also reading my times. Not me. Not me. Bible says, walk circumspectly. Don't waste time. Look at what's happening in your world and compare that to the scriptures. I need to be a student of culture and a student of God's word. I've been called to some very provocative work. Verse 5. We destroy arguments. How? How? Unless I can describe them, right? We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raise against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now watch this, comma. Being ready to punish every disobedience, comma. When your obedience is complete. Our wins are both eternal and territorial. When I read this passage, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete, I couldn't help but think about Israel's campaign against Jericho. I know I'm weird, but follow me. You're about to be weird too. When Israel came up against Jericho, God called his people to engage in a kind of warfare that was a part of their walk, but it wasn't traditional. Remember this? The weapons of their warfare were not physical, even though their walk was. He called them to arrange themselves in a certain way and to walk around the city seven times. And at last, they would blow the trumpets and the walls would come down. What a kooky and goofy strategy. But why, though? The walls still fell down without battering rams and catapults. Wasn't nobody, you know, throwing a hook over there and climbing up. Hey, follow me, man. We can't take it. Right? There was none of that. They obeyed God and the barriers fell. But do you know what else fell as they took Jericho? Strongholds in their own lives. Israel was always a work in progress. Remember what Paul said, ready, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. 
in the same moment that we are working in culture to, to, to promote the gospel and to pull down arguments and strongholds that would codify and exalt themselves against the name of Christ, at the same time we're working to pull that down, God's pulling down something in me. Now here's what's happening. Most of the time we have duped ourselves. Actually, no, no, you didn't dupe yourself. You allow Satan to lie to you, to say, you're, you're, you, you, your life is a total mess right now, personally. I can't get involved in gospel sharing until I get my act together. And what God says is, your act has never been and never will be together. You get your act together. I'll pull down the barriers of, 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 of belief and unbelief in your life when you get busy sharing the gospel. Because you see the powerful work of God tearing down walls in other places, and then I begin to tear them down in you simultaneously. So it's not like you got to wait until your life is perfect before you begin to, to preach and share the gospel with others. That is the lie of the adversary, to make you a constituent of the name but not of the nails. This is one of the great tricks to make the church passive, to make you feel like you need to be perfect before you begin to promote the gospel. Now here's, we about to get real provocative. You ready? We might even have to do something with the cameras. The world believes that the church are hypocrites, and this is one of the great arguments that they raise up against us, and that, that Jesus doesn't work any better than anything else that they're doing, because it is so rare that as we're walking with people in the world, we're prepared to open up the full medicine cabinet and show them the things that God is working on in us. In other words, as the, as the Revelation would say, that the people of God overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Talking to people about the stuff that God is actively deconstructing and tearing down in your life that were barriers to belief and oppositions to the truth, arguments against the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Are you ready to share how God is working on you? Trust me, folks will listen to you if you're sharing the gospel in that way. And so what's happening is we've been plugging and playing the gospel, trying to get other people to sign up for something. Meanwhile, we look perfect. And it's like, well, I don't, I don't want that because I don't want to be like you. You look pretentious. You don't need to look pretentious. You need to look like a work in progress whom God is perfecting. Wow, that's what it looks like when I walk in a righteousness that's been given to me rather than trying to manufacture my own? I like that. Wow, that's what it looks, wow, that you went through that when you were going through a process of deconstructing your own faith? You mean to tell me you too used to have doubts about Jesus and this is how God worked them out in your life? You went through that, God brought you through that? And so the, the walls of Jericho that we're being called to storm are not just the Jerichos of the culture, there's the Jerichos that are inside of our own consciences that need to be torn down at the same time. Not one waiting on the other. This is a part of the strategy, this is part of the strategy of Satan to immobilize a church and make it more passive. We need to be at war with the skeletons in the closet as part of our training to face the Goliaths of the culture. Do you remember David's conversation when he stood before Goliath? People questioned whether or not he was qualified and prepared. He says, hey, on this much smaller platform, I have been, I slew the lion and the bear. You got a lion and a bear in your life. And Lord says, let me, let me see you work on those as you are also warring against what's happening in the culture. 
Don't let the devil put you on the bench because you got crazy stuff jumping off in your life. As a matter of fact, the Lord knows about that craziness, and he's wanting you to see the power of the gospel working symphonically both in your life and in the lives of others. This is why a key part of Paul's evangelistic strategy is to walk alongside and with those. So as he is being transformed, he can share the nuggets and of that transformation with them as well. Our winds are both eternal and territorial. James says these words in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. James is the ultimate pragmatist. He's the person who told us that, you know, hey, your faith without works are dead. He says, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you do not receive because you ask wrongly you, so that you may spend it on your passion. He was talking to believers. He's talking to believers who, are, who, are war, who, who have a personal war in their own lives that they need to fight with the gospel if they want to see the gospel effectively work on the outside. You got stuff in your life that you want God to change on the outside. How much are you ready for him to pull down some strongholds on the inside of your life? So this morning, as I make an appeal that we as a church become more provocative in our presence, being provocative sometimes calls us to do things that make us feel awkward and out of step. Can you imagine going to war and walking around the walls of the enemy? How ridiculous might that look or seem? It seems ineffective, it seems inefficient, it seems indirect. It doesn't seem even related to what God is actually trying to accomplish or what you set out to accomplish. But it was all done in obedience. And I ask you, would you simply, out of all of these, I don't know how many words are up here on this page. I don't know how many words I've said. Take a big guess. Would you simply obey God in the basic function of sharing your faith? And as you will obey God, Will you be so bold as to watch him tear down some of the biggest barriers in your own life that you've been wrestling with for years? And you've been waiting for those barriers to be removed so that you can go share the gospel. And God says, no, when you obey me in sharing the gospel, I will allow you to see the gospel being effectual both outside in the lives of others and inside in your own life so that your, so that your testimony has integrity. You're not talking about a Jesus who you know from a distance. You, you talk, you, you're talking about a Jesus who is actively doing the work in you right now. Yeah. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I'm thankful for the people who would just kind of carve out a few moments to listen to this. I pray that you would find each one of us right where we are. Lord God, whatever is the biggest issue, the biggest obstacle, the biggest weight around our neck, the biggest, Lord God, anchor in our lives, Help us to know that you want to speak to that, that it is nothing in comparison to your gospel. Lord God, that these, are, that these are barriers to belief that the adversary wants to utilize to defeat our faith and put us on the sideline in sharing our faith, but these are obstacles that you want to mow down, Lord God, as a part of advancing the kingdom, not only in the culture, but also in us personally. I pray for the person today, Lord God, who is afraid to share their faith because it feels awkward. I pray, oh God, that you would remind them 
of how awkward it must have been for Jesus to hang upon that cross, scantily clothed, fully exposed, spat upon and lied upon, talk about awkward. I pray for that person, Lord God, who is, who feels like this isn't their season to be sharing their faith because they got a lot of work under the hood, they gotta get squared away. I pray, oh God, that you would let that person know that regardless of how, how successful and how much they may thrive in a given season, that they are always significantly below the ultimate standard of righteousness that is in Christ and that they're not witnessing from a place of their own righteousness, but from a righteousness that you gave us. And that what's currently going on in their life is no excuse for not sharing the faith. Would you also let them see, oh God, that, that in obeying you and basically sharing both the name of Jesus and the nails of Jesus, oh God, that you're gonna actually do a redemptive work in their own life? I pray for the person, oh God, who has made it their business to talk about your name, but really don't wanna talk about the nails because they're ashamed of what the news says about the church. They don't wanna be aligned and associated with. I pray, oh God, that you would deliver them from that fear. And I pray that you would remind them that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, according to Romans chapter five, verse eight, he did so while we were yet sinners. We were at our worst. In other words, we had a really raggedy testimony, but Jesus was still willing to do the work. I pray, oh God, that if Jesus wasn't embarrassed to die for us and do that great work, that we would not be embarrassed for them just because the church, Lord God, is not perfect. Would you help us to be provocative on our jobs, in our homes, in our families, to be bold, not just brazen personalities, but bold for the faith, the name of Jesus and the nails of Jesus, the completed work of Christ. I pray for the person that does not know you person who is curious about you, O oh God, that you would draw them forward, cause them to contemplate and to think seriously about this work and how it is that you died in our place on the cross for our sins, for our forgiveness, if we would bow to you. And then you were raised from the dead so that we would have ongoing victory over sin, death, and the devil, and we would receive power to be your witness, that the work on your cross did not stop with our own forgiveness. You call us by that same work to be faithful witnesses. Lord God, I pray for the person who's hearing this, maybe for the first time with clarity, that you would move on their hearts to bow the head and to bend the knee to you as Lord and Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.